All right, good morning, Redemption. Uh, my name is Josh, one of the pastors here, and uh, if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hands. One of our ushers would love to come bring you one. Uh, if you need to keep a Bible, if you need a Bible long-term, feel free to take it, keep it. It's yours. We're glad to give it to you. Uh, we're in the season of Lent, where we are journeying with Jesus towards the cross, and uh, we've kind of framed this Lent season around the theme of death unto life, and along the, those lines, we handed out uh, prayer cards when you walked in this morning. And so if you got one of these, uh, or if you want to grab one, they're at the info desk. And basically, this is a chance we'd love for you on the back uh, to be able to reflect and maybe write down an area right now where you're experiencing some of the uh, death in our world, loss, grief, brokenness, pain, uh, as well as uh, the second portion you'll see where you're longing to see the life, the resurrection, the power, the hope of Christ break in. And we as pastors, as leaders, as the leadership team here, we want to be praying for you in the season and the weeks and uh, the weeks ahead. So would encourage you to take advantage of that and uh, drop that off on your way out, and we would love to be praying for you in this season. Okay, well, have you ever seen a destination wedding, right? Like where people decide, I don't want to get married at home, I'm going to go somewhere else, so Hawaii or Mexico or the Caribbean, or wherever people might go. Uh, so you may have seen pictures, sometimes, you know, they're, they're saying their vows up atop a glacier, uh, or putting on the wedding rings in scuba gear down under the ocean, you know. Uh, well, today we're going to go to a destination wedding. Only at first it doesn't look like a wedding, okay? It's in John 4, this famous passage, the woman at the well, woman of Samaria. Uh, and many of us have heard this passage before, but I want to look at it from some fresh new angles. So I think John is going, yeah, it's Jesus encountering this woman, but he's also including some key pictures and images that show this is a picture of how Christ encounters us as his church, the bride, right? And not only does it not look like a wedding at first glance, it also doesn't look like a destination you'd want to go to for a wedding. It occurs at a pit stop. Um, And I've titled the sermon this morning, Pit Stop Wedding. So if you would, person next to you, they are your gas station attendant. You don't have to pull out your credit card, but you can tell them, fill her up. (laughs) Fill her up. Here we go. We're looking to Jesus this morning to fill us up. Here it is. All right, 401, it says, Now when Jesus learned, the Pharisees had heard, Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Pause. So uh, context, there's a baptism competition, right? The Pharisees are kind of keeping score and like, okay, John's got 384, Jesus got 385, he took the lead. Jesus and John aren't in a competition, but the Pharisees are. And this means they're seeing Jesus' movement is growing and it's becoming a threat. He is now public enemy number one. So Jesus is like, all right, I'm going to go where I'm wanted. If you guys don't want me here, then I'm going to leave Jerusalem, Judea, up north, and I'm going to go down to Galilee, down in the south. And on the way, we read, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. All right, well, let's stop here for a moment. Jesus makes a pit stop, right? He is on his way from Jerusalem in the north to Galilee in the south, and in the middle on the way was Samaria. And so his disciples, they're going to go get food, Jesus is going to get some water, and they're stopping to fuel up. And the thing about a pit stop is a pit stop is not where you want to go, it's where you have to go to get to where you want to go, right? Uh, this week, my uh, daughter Aiden and I took her hiking up in Sedona, and so uh, we were driving to Sedona to go hiking, but we had, you know, running out of gas, so I had to stop at Cortis Junction, I-17, Highway 69, whatever, to get um, some uh, gas and Gatorade, whatever, some drinks and all, right? And so we stopped at this pilot gas station, 
And it was fine, it was a good experience, but it wasn't where we were wanting to go, right? Uh, I don't think most folks are going, I'm gonna go plan my vacation at Pilot, right? At Pilot gas station. It's not somewhere you're necessarily striving to get to, it's a place you have to go where you're trying to get to where you want to go, right? Sometimes with God, however, the destination is not the destination. Sometimes with God, the pit stop is the destination, right? That's what we're going to see here. With Jesus is going with intentionality, he's not just here on accident. He has a purpose, a God appointment to keep at this pit stop. This is where he's going to encounter what we find as a picture of his bride. I think sometimes for us, we can be so focused on the destinations we're trying to get to, we can miss God at the pit stops along the way. Like maybe for you, the destination is that promotion. When I get that promotion, then we'll have the comfort we need, security, stability, then things will slow down. Then come find but in the many, you know, we, on the way, we miss the pit stop of God inviting you to play ball with your kid, right? We can be so focused on my destination is going to be when I get married. And so marriage is kind of the thing, and, and everything's just all revolving around that. But we can miss God inviting us to encounter him in our singleness moment. And going, God, they're going, there's a fullness of life here. You don't, have to, you don't have to wait. Like, there's a fullness of life in my kingdom in a unique and equal way here at this moment. Sometimes our destination might be, I think there are some of us, where God might be calling you to lead a Bible study or start a redemption community, an RC group. But you might be going, well, I, I can't get there yet. i got to get to that destination first to have a seminary or read all these books or whatever it may be. And, man, that's what we're here for, to, to walk with you. I believe God's going, hey, Take advantage of the moment of now, because we can get so focused on where we're going, we can miss God in the moment today. And so don't buy into the lie where we can kind of be like, all right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have enough when, or I'll be content when, or we'll be happy when. Or, what I found is that the when never comes, right? And God is inviting us to encounter him in the moment because God is a pit stop God who delights to show up in the everyday moments of our lives. All right, well, let's keep going. So, verse 7. <clears throat> the woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes. Uh, he get, sorry, that's the Josh insert. <laughs> he gave us this well and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All right. Well, this is a marriage scene. Boy meets girl. Right? This is where a boy meets girl. And you may go, what? Josh, it doesn't say marriage. There's no wedding. There's nothing like that in there. You're, Josh, you're crazy, right? Well, let me explain. Uh, the well is where the groom meets the bride. In the Old Testament, the well is this common image. It's like a motif. This, uh, it becomes almost a symbol in the Old Testament of where the groom encounters the bride. And so we see in Genesis 24 uh, with Isaac and Rebekah, the well is the place where Rebekah is found. We see in Genesis 29 with Jacob and Rachel. Jacob finds Rachel at the well for the first time. We see in Exodus 2 with Moses and Zipporah. It's this trope or this motif, this theme. This is where the groom and the bride 
first meet and encounter. And it's interesting, there's even some echoes and allusions here to these Old Testament stories. So it says when Jesus came, he's sitting down by the well. And it's the same phrase used uh, back in Exodus where Moses sits down by the well when he's about to encounter Zipporah. And then Jesus says, hey, give me a drink. It's the same phrase used when the servant, Abraham sends his servant, and he goes, and he says, okay, i got to find a wife for Isaac, and God, you need to guide this. So whoever, the first person that comes, and when I say, give me a drink, if they give me a drink, then I'll know they're the one for you, right? And so there's all these allusions here. Now, Jesus comes similarly. He sits down, he says, give me a drink, and it ensues. This conversation ensues. So the well is where the groom and the bride meet. And we're going to see a number of details here that John shows. She's a picture. This is a picture of Christ encountering us as his church. Like, yes, it's a real person, but he's using details to show, kind of blow it up as a representation of also something much bigger. All right, well, I love here how Jesus makes himself vulnerable before her. He says, give me a drink, right? And kind of the craziness, think about God asks for water. Like the God of all the universe, the one who made the rivers and the oceans and the fountains and everything else, like comes and now he is thirsty. He's tired. He's been journeying, making it, it's a desert ridge road he's been traveling on to get here. And so he and his disciples are thirsty, they're tired. Jesus experiences our frailty, our humanity, and he approaches us as his bride and he encounters us ultimately in his frailty and vulnerability on the cross. The power of the incarnation that God has made himself vulnerable in Christ and placed himself before us and invites us to bring the gifts that we have to bring to draw out our humanity. And this strikes me at how God does evangelism versus how we often do, right? Like how God does evangelism, how he reaches out to this woman, because we often think, okay, if I'm going to share my faith, if I'm going to tell someone about Jesus, then I got to be the giver, right? I got to be the one who's in the position of uh, giving that gift to meet them in their time of need or when they see how generous I am because I, you know, uh, surprise them with this, this, this lavish gift or when they see how generous we are as a church because all the money we give to these different things. And I'm not saying those are bad. Those can be good things. God's calling us to be a generous community. But sometimes we can think that's, that's the only way. And the beauty here is God's going, actually, you can, part of sharing the faith is becoming a receiver. Like, are we the kind of people who would, welcome and receive and draw out the kind of gifts that his people, others have to bring? Are we the kind of people that people would want to invite over for a meal and, and that we, yeah, like we want to actually come into Europe. You see Jesus, he's constantly going into other people's houses and letting them throw a meal for him, right? So part of sharing our faith, I think, is becoming a people who can receive hospitality from others, who can draw out the gifts and the insights in all of others. Similarly, we can think, man, I got to have all the answers, right? I got to be able to, if we get into debate, it's like chess, and I got to beat them. You know, I got to be able to have the moves to beat them. And no, like, sometimes I think evangelism could start with, like, having the right questions, right? Being able to go, man, can I share with you a part? You know, I know you're not a Christian. I am. Here's something I'm struggling with, or I don't know. I've had doubts about this, where to display a God who's big enough that we don't have to have it all figured out to trust in him and be with him and to display that kind of where we can think, man, i got to have my life so polished so they don't see any, you know, mistakes. And if they see how perfect I am and what a good citizen I am and all the stuff I do, then, then, then they'll know, like, oh, this is only a great God can make a person who's so polished and perfect. No, stop, right? Like, the gospel, we can show our chinks in the armor. Like, the reality is, like, grace, if we believe in a God of grace, it means we can show the parts of our lives that it's not about us having it all together, it's about a God who has found us and is working with us in process where we don't necessarily have it all together. So Jesus shows up and he makes himself vulnerable. 
But what Jesus has to offer us still is yet greater than what we have to offer him. He says, hey, if you knew who it was that's asking, you would have asked him, and I would have given you something even greater, this living water. And I love here, too, how Jesus crosses over. He's crossing all the divides to get to faith. He's crossing all the divides to get to us as his people. Uh, we see probably five divides here that Jesus is leaping over. Uh, race, religion, class, gender, uh, moral kind of status, right? So we see in race that Samaritans were... Um, They had Jewish roots, but then entering the exile had intermarried with the Assyrians and all, and so uh, they were often could be looked down upon as sort of like a a quote-unquote half-breed. They are like mixed race, so they were half-Jew, half-Gentile. And uh, so there were racial divisions. They had religious divisions. Uh, They they had a different temple they worshipped at, and they wouldn't go to Jerusalem where Israel's temple was at. And so Jews often saw them as so impure that it was said many... Uh, many, like, rabbis or Jewish people would not even eat out of a bowl that a Samaritan person had touched, right? So there was religious division. There is gender here at play. Like, the disciples are shocked when they find that he's even talking with a woman and probably had to do with what may have been the reputation, as we'll see in a moment. Um, There is class. Most people would have their servants go and uh, get, get the water, and so she's someone that obviously can't afford that. And there's the moral piece, too, that we're going to see here in a minute. She's someone who, um, it's, we're told it's the sixth hour, which is noon. You think about noon back in the day, and you still see this around the world, people usually go and gather water early in the morning and late at night before it gets hot in the heat of the day, right? If you're coming at noon to get water here, it's a picture like you don't want to be seen. You don't want to be around. You don't want to bump into your neighbors or townsfolk, probably because of reputation rumors around. What I love here is Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is the hurdle jumper. Like he's coming after her just like he comes after us and no obstacle is getting in his way. Jesus crosses divides of race, of religion, of gender, of class and socioeconomic status, of moral stuff. Jesus is breaking it all down to get to us and make us a reconciled people. Which means that some of us this morning, you might be going, well, hey, I'm the wrong, I, I don't have this figured out, or I don't have, you know, and, and Jesus doesn't care. <laughs> like, he cares about you, but he doesn't care about the barriers because he wants to get to you. And so he's willing to tear down the barriers in order to get to our hearts. And as he forms us as the church, as his people, we are half Jew, half Gentile, like this woman, right? We're part Jew, part Gentile, body of Christ. We are every nation, tribe, and tongue. We are people from a backdrop. We've come out of, you know, all religions and no religions and every, you know, like have come and found and encountered life in Christ. We are woman and man, slave and free. God is making the church, crossing these divides to reconcile and unite us as a body of people sold out in devotion to him. Jesus is the hurdle jumper who crosses our divides. All right, well... Let's keep going. How, how does she respond? So Jesus is jumping these hurdles, coming after her, pursuing. What is her response like? Well, it's a lot like ours. It says, Jesus said to her, go. So this is just after. He's like, so, um, sir, give me this water. And Jesus said to her, go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. All right, well, so Jesus pursues her. He comes after her. And the first thing we see in this section is that she plays hard to get, right? Like we often do. She plays hard to get. Um, the first response, you know, like it, it, catch us up here. It's kind of like Jesus is like, hey, give me a drink. She's like. Why are you asking me for a drink? He's like, well, uh, if you knew who I was, I'd give you living water and you'd have even more. And she's like, well, you don't even have a cup. Where are you going to get this water? He's like, well, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I've got this living water and seriously, this is the best thing ever. And, and, and she's like, all right, well, then give me this living water. I, I imagine her kind of sassy. All right, then, hey, come on, bring this living water. I want to try some. And he's like, go call your husband. Change of subject. But not a change of subject. What he's doing, he's actually pointing to her deepest need of thirst. Like the area of deepest thirst in her life. Deepest wounding. And she backs way up. It's interesting. Um, he, up to this point, her responses have averaged around 32 words. And then this time it averages four. <laughs> so you've got this back and forth. I have no husband. Right? Like there's kind of like, whoa, back up, Jesus. Jesus has touched a nerve. Like he's pulled back the cover on a dry, parched, and barren land of her heart. Right? This is an area of wounding. Now there's some question here. Is this, uh, uh, you know, is, is, Jesus points out, you know, you've had these five husbands and now the sixth one, and he's not even, you know, willing to marry you is kind of the picture. And you can kind of go, is this something that she's done or is this something that's done to her? And I think John leaves it ambiguous. He goes, probably a bit of both, right? Like on the one hand, back then, uh, it, it would have been the guy who had divorced or left. And so it's probably this picture of she's been wounded, abused, abandoned. It's probably been the victim in, in a day and age in the ancient Near East where this was just uh, too common, right? And so, and yet there's also this picture um, where Jesus seems to point to uh, her and this picture, like she's been going back and back to this well to find meaning, to find life, to find fulfillment, and it's left her even more thirsty. And this becomes this picture again throughout the, the Bible of often we as the bride of Christ, particularly as those who before we had run to all these other places, all these other lovers, all these other things to try and find fulfillment, and they ultimately left us unsatisfied. And God finds us and calls us to himself. So there's probably a bit of both here. She's probably both the, the, the sin that's been done to her and the sin that she's done, and she backs way up. <clears throat> but the thing I love about Jesus is he's not content to stay on the surface. Right? It's interesting. He, uh, three times, he kind of takes the half-truth, she says, and puts it right back in front of her, right? Like lovingly, but puts it right back in front of her. Uh, so she's like, I have no husband. He's like, what you said is quite true. <laughs> it is true that the fact is you have had, you know, it's true. so he keeps going like, yeah, I'm going to take the half truth, but I'm not willing to kind of step back and avoid the reality of where you've been because I'm more concerned not with the surface, but with your heart. Right? Jesus isn't content to stay on the surface. 
I also think there's a picture here of Jesus as the seventh husband. It's a bigger picture of John's painting where um, it's like, man, she's been, had these five husbands, and now is on the sixth, and he won't even marry, but now Jesus arrives, and he's the one who's going to bring fulfillment to, to his church as his people, as his bride. In spite of the places that we've gone, the places that have left us empty, uh, the things that we've turned to and the things that have turned on us, Jesus comes and he is the seventh husband. He is the fulfillment, the one in whom our true thirst is quenched and our fulfillment is found. Well, so Jesus brings the truth back up in her face and then she changes the subject. Right? It's still playing hard to get. She turns this, changes the subject to religion. Well, we worship on this mountain. You guys say we're supposed to worship that mountain. And let's, let, let's, let's back away from my personal life. Let's talk about religion, right? And that's what we often like to do. When th- there's this time where we kind of encounter Jesus, we're exploring, oh, this is great. And then suddenly he pulls back the surface on our heart. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Back. Let's, let's talk about kind of abstract doctrine or something, right? Like when religion moves to reality, we often get uncomfortable and take a step back. And... I think that's because sometimes our religious questions can be a smokescreen for where our hearts are really at, right? Sometimes our religious questions can be a smokescreen for the deeper condition of our hearts. Um, not always, you know, but I found over the years, there have been a number of times where I've had someone come in and be like, Josh, can I process? I'm just having these big questions about God. I don't know how I can believe in a God who would, da, da, da. I don't know, you know, and, and we'll talk about it. And, okay, yeah, that makes sense, but still, you know, and, and like no amount of evidence, no amount of, you know, conversation, no amount of stuff seems to be enough. And then six months, a year down the road, I'll discover, like, find out, like, oh, they've been having an affair. They're like, well, when did the affair start? And like, oh, right before started having the big questions, right? And now, not always. Now, sometimes I've had honest questions I've wrestled with in faith. You may have had honest questions you wrestled with. So I'm not saying always, but sometimes our religious questions can be a smokescreen to avoid dealing with the deeper stuff that's going on in our hearts and our lives. And once again, the thing I love about Jesus here is he's unwilling to keep it at that surface level. Well, how, how does he do so, Well, okay, he, starts, he takes her religious question, and then he drills it back down into her. So uh, starting with the religious question, these two mountains, what were they? Well, the one mountain, Jerusalem, is Mount Zion. That's where the temple was, it's Israel's temple. And Jesus affirms the place and role of this temple. He says salvation is from the Jews, this mountain, right? Uh, the other was uh, the Samaritans worshipped instead on Mount Gerizim. They had a different temple in, in, in this part of the land. And this is where they would go to worship. And Jesus goes... Yeah, okay, you're saying that mountain, this mountain, but he's essentially saying the time is coming and how it's now even come in me where the true worshipers, it won't necessarily be on Mount Zion, it won't be on Mount Gerizim, it's actually going to be worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. The implicit message is I've come to make you as my people, as my bride, as my church, a living temple in which the living God dwells by his spirit. That... She's going, okay, let's step out and talk about that temple or this temple. He's going, I've come to make you the temple. I've come to make you, Redemption Church, to make us as the people of God, where, yes, there's significance, sort of that temple there, but ultimately the temple, the significance was it was the dwelling place of God, where God came to dwell and reside and live with his people. 
And the beauty of the gospel is that God has come in Christ. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwells to dwell and live amongst his people. And now as Jesus takes us to himself as his bride, as his church, and we become one body, one flesh, united with him and dwelt by his spirit, filled with the presence and power of God, we become the living temple of Jesus to display his presence into the world. Right? So Jesus is going... Yeah, you're, you're trying to deflect and pull it out here, and I want to bring it back here. Because the reason I've come is to make you my temple, like us. That we would become his living temple, his bride in the world. And in this picture here, the water is the spirit. Central image in this passage, the living water. Living water, what's that? Well, living water was a term people would use for a river. Because you think of like a well, well water was like stationary, but river water was like rushing, right? It's alive, it's, it's flowing, it's, it's got fish in it and life in it and things moving and you get in it, you got to suck downstream, right? So living water was like river water, streams of life. And uh, water is a life-giving image. It's, a, it's an image for the spirit. Just going into this passage in John 3, uh, John 3, 34, he's just said, uh, John's just said that, the, that God will give the spirit without measure to those who their trust in the Son. And what is the Spirit? It's not like an it or a force. It's the presence and the power of Jesus. It's the personal living presence and power of Jesus, a person. It's the, 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 the indwelling presence of Jesus. So Jesus invites us to drink deeply of this water. He's inviting us to drink deeply of himself. And the water, it's a life-giving image. Uh, you think the two main images for the spirit are breath and water. And breath is kind of a life-giving human image. We need air to breathe in and breathe out to survive. Whew. Water is a life-giving, more of an agricultural image. When the water flows, then the crops can flourish, and there's abundance and fruitfulness and all in the land. This morning, Jesus has come to bring life and life to the full. Both of these are life-giving images. And the well, uh, one of the significance of the well, like why it was kind of a marriage metaphor, was as a symbol of fertility in Jewish culture. Uh, but the river was also a symbol. It was this picture in Ezekiel 47. Part of the hope of the prophets was when God comes back, when he restores his temple, when he draws his people to himself, that water will flow like a rushing river from the temple and to the dry and bar parched and barren wasteland. The trees will begin to sprout alongside and grow fruit every month, like fruit on its leaves every month, and it'll even flow into the Dead Sea. It's dead because it's salt water. Nothing can live there, no fish. And suddenly it'll overflow the Dead Sea so that there's fish and life in abundance. It's a picture of God growing gardens in the wasteland. And Jesus is here going, I've come to grow gardens in the wastelands of our hearts, of your heart, of the places where you're parched and thirsty and have run out of your own steam. I think this raises the question, where do you go when you're thirsty? Where are those places you have been going, those wells you've been dipping from, drinking from, that have maybe satiated you for a moment, but have left you even thirstier in the long run? Uh, for some of us, that might be relationships. Maybe uh, like, like this woman, it's been like, man, uh, having that, that girl or that guy or that spouse, that romantic thing, if, if only I had that, like that's this place where we've sought meaning and fulfillment. And it's left you dry and thirsty. 
For some of us, it might be money. Like, man, if I just had enough in the bank account and enough security, if I got that thing where we had enough stability, but it's never going to be enough. For some of us, it could be online. I think there's a growing tendency today with just social anxiety and things where people, when we start to feel down about ourselves, we go online for either to get interaction with those people and get a sense of affirmation, and yeah, I got my people on my side, or to get kind of that information. If I could just be exposed to everything that's going on, I'm going to satisfy my thirst for meaning and fulfillment by going out. And for some of us, we might try and satiate that thirst with actual drink. Think of sometimes the way that uh, alcohol, and you know, we're, we're not like uh, legalistic, you can never drink, but I, I know I've seen in a number of friends' lives where uh, when we can tar- start to turn to substances to try and medicate the pain, when you had something hard or difficult or traumatic happen, and when you start finding yourself going to drink or substance, things that you're actually trying to numb the pain away, and that is the seed ground of addiction, ends up leaving you thirstier in the long run. We're seeing this uh, striking me years ago when I would travel internationally to places where often Coke is cheaper than water. Many parts of the world where Coca-Cola can be cheaper than water. And the irony, like, I like Coke, it's, you know, I like soda, whatever, but there's this reality that, like, because of the economic piece that for some families, it's like you, you'd end up buying and drinking more Coke just because it was cheaper right in front. And while it's tasty on the short end, the irony is it actually leaves you more dehydrated and thirsty on the long end, long run, not to mention the health impact it can have. And I think that's kind of a picture of how sin often works in our life, you know? It, it's cheaper on the front end. It's like actually more convenient, and it feels like this quick buzz or this quick hit that can kind of satiate, and we're, we're thirsty. I know when, when I've been traveling and I'm hot and I'm tired, especially when you're hot and like, well, I'm in Arizona, so it's hot here, but... Like, you're like, oh, man, nothing sounds so refreshing like Coke, right? But then you have it, and an hour later, you're even thirstier than when you started. And part of the picture here is, like, Jesus, this living water, it may cost a little more on the, on the short end going, I mean, you mean I got to give up? You know, I got to bend the knee. I got to lay my life, whatever. But it's actually more satisfying and fulfilling and filling in the long run. And when you've got... Christ, the living water, his life-giving presence at the center of your life and your existence, uh, then you can step out and you can have the other things. I mean, you can, uh, when you're drinking water and your wallet hydrated, you can have a Coke and it's fine, right? If you live on it, it's bad. If you're seeking to have it satiate all your thirst, it's bad. But when you're satisfied and filled with Christ, you can enjoy that Coke. You can enjoy that relationship. You can enjoy that money in the bank. You can enjoy being online. You can enjoy uh, maybe a drink now and then for some. Like, you can enjoy life, but it's a question of where are you going to meet your deepest thirst? And Jesus is inviting us to find our deepest thirst satiated and satisfied in him. That as the bride of Christ, who he's encountered in kind of the pit stops of our lives, that we, we have found in him a meaning and a satisfaction that's more than anything else could bring. And it's at this place that Jesus reveals himself to her as the Messiah, where he says, I who speak to you am he. Now it's interesting, this is the only person in the Gospel of John that he tells directly he's the Messiah, other than the high priest Caiaphas, when it's going to kill him. So two people in the Gospel of John, he reveals himself to here, I think, symbolic, to, to her, and symbolically, he reveals himself to his bride to cultivate the devotion, and he reveals himself to the temple leadership, 
kill him. We as the church, as the bride of Christ, we've been brought in into this intimacy with Christ, this union with him, a reconciled community of every nation, tribe, and tongue that he pours his very presence into to fill us as his people, to unite us as his people, to satisfy our deepest thirst and to offer us poured out with him for the world. All right, well, as we conclude, wrap things up here, uh, this final movement here in the passage. It says, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Um, So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. All right, well, we see here that when you're satisfied in Jesus, you want to shout it from the rooftops. Like this union, this wedding at the well, this encounter, Christ and his church that we kind of see this picture of here. When she encounters Jesus, she runs into town and tells everyone, come see the one who. Come see the one who told me everything I ever did. And I think similarly in our lives, when we encounter the presence of the living, when it moves from religion to reality, when it moves to the presence of Christ, like you can't help but go share it, like share it with the world. You'll never believe Come see the one who met me in my broken marriage. Come see the one who met me in my addiction. Come see the one who encountered me when I was living for all these other things that didn't satisfy. Come see the one who. See, I think often we've thought the problem, maybe the reason we don't share our faith enough, evangelism, is that we don't have the right technique. But the problem is not the right technique. It's not having the right encounter, right? Like the solution is not getting the right steps and things to go do. The solution is falling in love with Jesus. And when you fall in love with Jesus, you can't help but have it bleed out of you. It's just who we are as people who have encountered Christ. And when we encounter him, I love to hear how Jesus doesn't care how scandalous it looks to be with you. Jesus doesn't care how scandalous it looks to be with you. The disciples come back and they're like, what's he doing talking to her? And no one asked him, what do you seek? It's kind of like you catch your friend in the parking lot of a strip club or something. You know, you're like, uh, you're not supposed to be here. Talk about what? Well, I'm not even going to ask. I'm going to trust. You know, like, it's, it's, it's kind of the picture. But the irony is, what, no one wants to ask him, what, what is it you seek? But the reality is what he is seeking is her. Not to use her like others have, but to give himself to her. God, is Jesus is seeking you and me. He encounters us at the pit stops, the un expected areas of our lives because he wants to be with us and i love we go back to the beginning jesus had to go to samaria i think now we get a whole new insight on why jesus had to go to samaria it wasn't for a pit stop it was for a person it wasn't because he was being forced to by fate or something outside of himself it's because he was motivated from the inside out by desire he didn't just go there for water. He went there for a wedding. The reality is Jesus didn't bump into your life by accident on the way to somewhere else. You were his destination. You weren't a pit stop on the way. You were his destination. I believe Jesus is going, man, I had to go to Arizona State University. I had to go to Mill Avenue. I had to go to Hackett House. I had to be at 
Hole in the Rock Park at Papago Park that one night as the sun was going down. I had to be in that gutter uh, at 2 a.m. I had to be at Marco Denisa High School at the Young Life meeting back in 1982. I just had to. I needed to be at that house in the suburbs at zip code 85282. And you're like, Jesus, why did you have to be there? And he's like, because you were there and I had to get to you. I had to get to you. When you experience that, when you experience the pursuing God, the God who comes after us and encounters us in the unexpected places and lays his life down and jumps over every hurdle and overcomes every obstacle to be with us and, and gets a hold of your life and gives you his very presence from the inside out, suddenly you don't care what those people were saying about you. You don't care about the names they called you. You can't help but go into town and tell everyone, come see the one who is all our satisfaction is just being able to say, I'm with him. So as we come to the table this morning, as we come to the bread of his body given and the wine of his blood shed, come to Jesus who gets full by filling us. Jesus fills himself by filling us. I love the ending here where the disciples come back and they're like, hey, uh, we got some food, Rabbi, eat. And he's like, I got food you don't even know about. You know? He's, hey, he's like, I'm not hungry. And they're like, well, uh, well, why do we stop at this pit stop? <laughs> he's like, well, I got food you don't know about. And they're like, well, he's like, well, my, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, which is to come and be with us. Jesus gets full by filling us. So the invitation this morning is to come and to be fed. As we come to the table, we would allow Christ to fill us as his bride. Bring your deepest thirst. I love, we're going to take a moment here in a minute to contemplate a moment of reflection and love for us to reflect, God, where is that area of your deepest thirst? What are the wells you've been running to to try and satisfy and fill the thirst in your life? Let's take those this morning. Let's bring those to Jesus in prayer and let's encounter him because he loves to fill us with his very presence. Would you join me?